1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Pat Manning on the show, and we'll be discussing his new book, The African Diaspora, A History Through Culture. You've probably heard the word diaspora before. It is most often associated with Jews and the Jewish diaspora, but there have been many, many others. There is the Chinese diaspora. There is the Indian diaspora. And, of course, there's the subject of Professor Manning's book, the African diaspora, and that is the spread of Africans all over the world. Uh, Africans have been moving all over the world for a very long time. In fact, one might say that they were the original out-migrants. Some fifty or 60,000 years ago, uh, all of us, or the ancestors of all of us, left Africa Pat deals with a much more recent diaspora or exodus and that is the one that began roughly in 1400 and continues to this day. Of course there's a large intermittent phase between about 1600 and 1900 that is bound up with the sad story of slavery but there are a lot of other stories to tell about the African diaspora. I should also say that Pat Manning is one of the founders of world history so it was a real honor for me to talk to him on those grounds alone. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Pat. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. That's very good. You are in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of my favorite cities. And one of my favorite cities as well. (laughs) I imagine it is. How's the weather there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's cloudy and
0: cool today after uh, being sunny and 80 degrees yesterday.
1: Oh, you're a lucky devil. No, it's quite nice. We have beautiful springs here in Iowa. They last about two days. Uh, they, oh. yeah, no, no, they last a little longer. I should tell our listeners that we have Pat Manning on the show and I'm really, really pleased to have him because he is uh, someone who uh, I have followed for, for many years since I entered history. He's also one of the founders of the field of world history. You don't get to talk to someone who founded a very often, and he's written a wonderful new book called The African Diaspora, A History Through Culture. I I don't really know anything about African history, to be honest with you. As I was telling Patrick in the pre-interview, my graduate program taught me to know everything there was about the uh, 1670s in Russia. So uh, not not exactly broad, but uh, so this is one of the reasons I do these shows and get to read these wonderful books, and I learned a lot about African history and the African diaspora uh, within which we all live. Yeah, though yeah. some people from Africa who made it into Russia in the sixties. Oh yes, actually, I know about th- about these people. I do know. Yes, we'll talk about that. So, but uh, Pat, why don't we begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, and how you founded World History? <laughs> if that's not um, too much to say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I started life in Southern California, um, and. Um, was an undergraduate in chemistry, actually, at uh, at Caltech, though interested in history as I, as I went through that, and uh, um, decided to head off to graduate school in the early 1960s, uh, at a time when African countries were getting independence. There was a lot of excitement about that, and so I went off to Madison, Wisconsin, to study history of Africa. Um, and... Um, had one of those careers that started a little slow. I taught in community colleges for 13 years and then hopped around, and finally, by the 1980s, I ended up at Northeastern University in Boston, jointly appointed in history and African-American studies. Um, And my work was initially on economic history in Africa. I wanted to see economic history done in Africa at the same standard as in other places. Um, And that led me into studies of uh, the slave trade, which was a, a booming field in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, um, by uh, early, uh, the beginning of the 1990s, I had convinced the department at Northeastern University that we should uh, not only try to open a doctoral program in history, but Uh, focus it in the uh, the study of world history. So if I'm a founder in world history, it's not really as a founder of the field, but as a a founder of graduate study in world history. My particular angle has been the importance of treating this as a research field and not just a teaching field. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, So uh, from 1994 till the early 2000s, uh, I uh, had the the pleasure of um, leading the the World History Center at Northeastern University and uh, directing a a doctoral program in which uh, nearly 15 people uh, did uh, studies and degrees in world history um, and, um, uh, and got jobs that they still have. Um my research continued in uh, the Af- African history and African diaspora history. and then sort of wrapping that work up in I published a two thousand and three book called Navigating World History, which is an overview of the of the field of uh, historiography and conceptualization and research and uh, uh, um, methodology, and finally a section on. Uh, graduate study in world history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Northeastern program um, uh, just uh, d- didn't make it. It was, it was uh, uh, I, well, I won't, I won't, I'll just g- get into the long version of the story if I go into it at all. In any case, uh, that slowed down, and in 2006, I had the opportunity to come to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, which has been a wonderful fit for me, and uh, we opened up a Um, second and larger, and I think more successful center in world history, opened in 2008, and we're just about ready to open up a doctoral program in world
1: history. Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. That's terrific. I think all of us in the uh, field followed the uh, story and fate of the program at Northeastern with some interest, and uh, I know that I think it's too bad they decided not to continue the program, but I'm very happy to hear that it's going to, uh, I'm sure, prosper at, at – um, uh, in, in Pittsburgh. So the, one thing I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about is the identity of world history itself. What is it? I mean, I think people understand what is it? Yeah, people understand exactly what German history is and Russian history. That's what I right. was trained to study and so on and so forth, all these national histories. But uh, what exactly is world history?
0: Right, and it can't be exactly what world history is because it's big enough, and so it goes in lots of different Mm -hmm. directions. Um, uh, And that's why there are all these competing names for it, world history, global history, transnational history, international history, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And and those subdivisions actually do do mean things there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, um, most importantly, history at a large scale. Trying to find patterns that are uh, discernible uh, over uh, large areas and long periods of time. So world history is is most obviously about multiple spaces. Uh, so going, you know, going, I mean, the history not just of North America, but of North America and Europe together. That's that's a kind of a f- familiar version of it, or indeed, of the African diaspora, another hunk of the world. But world history is also long periods of time. Uh, so, most of the history profession does focus on just the last last two centuries. Uh, so your work in R- R- Russian history is kind of early stuff. <laughs> uh, um, the, even even though Russian history goes way back before oh, yeah. that, no, the, no the work is done mm-hmm. on recent times. So, so world historians are are especially interested in in earlier times or links between early and recent times, and then two more dimensions to this. It's it's different topics. So, um, world history includes the the inter- interactions between economic and political history, or or, or cultural and social history. World well, historians aren't the only ones who do this, but there's a particular attention to how one aspect of life affects another. And then, and this is this is what has developed in recent times. Uh, an understanding that world history is all about, also about the relationship between different scales of human uh, experience. Mm-hmm. So not just the worldwide patterns, but the interaction between national and global history, or indeed the role of the individual in the world or the world in the life of the individual. Mm-hmm. So um, there's uh, so so no one person can do all of those things, but the idea, as I see it, thinking in terms of graduate school. Is that there is evolving a literature in world history that focuses on an explanation of the human experience overall, or the human experience overall in a few centuries, or the overall experience of the human economy, say, in the last five centuries, where the, the objective is to is to look at the big patterns, especially, though um, you know each person will have their own special area within
1: it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad to hear the phrase. that's That's terrific. I I was just saying I was so glad to hear the phrase. It's sort of the history of humanity as a totality. I don't remember exactly how you put it, but I think this is something that is sorely needed because uh, graduate programs in history, uh, for all that they make you take a couple of introductory classes and stuff outside your field, are very segmented. Uh, most things are stovepiped so that the the German historian doesn't know what to say to the Latin American historian. The Latin American historian has no idea what to say to the Japanese historian. Um, And and I think this is largely a function of uh, the way we conceive of valuable historical work and publishers have conceived of it. So I know that in my own case, as again we talked about this in the pre-interview, I wrote my books and articles on early modern Russian history, but then I kind of felt I knew enough about early modern Russian history quite honestly, I satisfied my curiosity and I was ready to do something else. And I I remember when my department said, this a long time ago, you know, what's your next monograph on early modern Russian history going to be? And I'm like, I'm not going to write another one. I'm going to go do something else now. And uh, yeah, that, that, um, I think everybody has that uh, sense that they want to move into another direction, but it's just not, it's not really allowed very much. So I could say that uh, not only did I study the 16th century, but now I'm trying to work uh, on very long periods of time in my own work, I'm, I'm working on the evolution of human nature and initial hunter-gatherers. I'm sure a big story like that. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, – I guess I'm a big fan of, of, of world history. I also think it rises above all the sort of sectarian infighting that we have because when you, when you really do look at the big picture, it's it's, uh, it's pretty humbling in a way. It's pretty humbling. So in any event, I, I applaud you for your work. Let me let me um, ask you this. How did you come to write The African Diaspora?
0: How did I come to write The African Diaspora? Uh, well, I was approached by uh, a publisher's representative who said, why don't you write a book on the history of the African Diaspora? And I <laughs> dragged my feet and thought about it for a year um, and ultimately decided to go along with it. Because it's an opportunity to uh pull together and try to make a statement about all the different areas in which I have worked over time mm-hmm. um so i had worked you know primarily as a historian of Africa but also done research on on um transatlantic slave trade, but then with that slave trade in multiple directions and then an interesting project on louisiana and and uh, um and had um had training in in a, in multiple disciplines uh, so area studies work in African history gave one stuff in uh anthropology and sociology as well and uh so it was an attempt to try to tell that overall story mm-hmm. um, and um uh, So that process started at uh, Gauche in 2000 or maybe even 1999, so it took me quite a while to get it uh, finished up, Um, but I knew right away the basic way in which I wanted to organize the book, which was that it was to include uh, the, the African continent, that is to say not just to be about the New World diaspora, but to include the African continent, and also what I've called, come to call the old world uh, African diaspora, the, um, the movement of Africans into Europe and different parts of Asia and the Indian Ocean. And second, I knew that I wanted to organize it in chronological terms, that rather than present a, a regional chapters and do an accumulation of regional stories, that I would try in each time period that I identified to uh, Um, look at the interconnections amongst regions and see if there are some larger patterns that emerge um, that... that might have been previously a little harder to see, but that that appear when you uh, right. uh, review this whole region for a, a couple centuries or a century. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I found I did find a few uh, things that I thought were uh, new ways of looking at things that came from from looking at that breadth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, pretty rapidly, I came up with the the subtitle. A uh, history through culture now, I'm not a cultural historian. I'm an economic historian. I have the gut impulses of a, of a social scientist uh, looking at cause and effects and I've had to learn to think about feedback and so forth but um the the um I, um I wanted to focus on an interplay of cultural affairs <coughs> excuse me along with the um, the political and economic and social history, that's sort of the, the core of the history of in, enslavement and emancipation and, and struggles for um, um, entry into political participation. That's the, the most obvious narrative for for the African diaspora. So the p- particular emphasis is that in these stories about, about black people in Africa and in uh, other regions usually in slavery uh, we're short on things in the voice of Africans, so the you know now we have tons of stuff that's written in the last thirty forty years I mean literature in Africa and throughout the Americas is is just spinning out in great quantities, mm-hmm. song lyrics and so forth, but for earlier times we're short on verbal stuff, but if we look at the material culture. And the expressive culture, the religious practices, the dress, the uh, all the things that people make and do, uh, we can try to get from that responses of the, the people at every stage and in every place in, in the unfolding of the diaspora, uh, the, the representations that people gave to um, the... Um, world that they lived in and and in some sense be in, in a dialogue with the people of the past as we look mm-hmm. from the present. And mm-hmm. um, so I so was that, and just to, to tell you one particular struggle that I faced already right. because a, a big thing for me was images for the book mm-hmm. and I wanted the images insofar as possible to be things that were created by people of Africa and the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. And I found that it's so many of the standard images that one would get are images made by by Europeans or by mm-hmm. people outside the African mm-hmm. and, and diaspora community. Uh, and so the images that I have are, in, in a certain sense, not the most arresting ones um, or the most uh, or the best known ones. Um, but it's been an interesting uh, um exercise for me to to really try to develop a, a from in, a, in visual terms, you know, the way in which people
1: of the African Diaspora have mm-hmm. looked at themselves and their world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, let me ask a couple of what may seem like a, a bit naive questions, I guess, um, but I know that I'm interested. One of the challenges that uh, I face whenever I start a project is uh, when to start and what to include. Uh-huh. And in this case... The these challenges seem almost insurmountable because African history is uh, the oldest among human histories. Uh, so where to begin is a difficult. People have been leaving Africa for what is it now sixty thousand years, um, so that that yeah, makes it know. somewhat problematic. And then Africa itself is a very large place and it's very diverse. Uh, yeah. So maybe you could just talk about those two things. When 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 do you begin and what to include? Right.
0: Um, so the. Narrative in the book begins in uh, my the first chapter is a um, conceptual organization of the, the materials, and so the narrative begins in the second chapter, and it really begins in 1400, year 1400. Though there is a, a background section of, on um, the language and cultures and and the uh, social structures of of Africa, but um, the I I chose not to try to uh, well to because from 1400 to 1600 you can talk about both the African continent and the diaspora regions to the east and to the west of the continent and I wanted to convey a picture of change in Africa what were the debates and I chose as the main debate the question of an evolving hierarchy and how people you know encourage and limited hierarchy there. at the same time as systems of, of African immigrant populations, especially in slavery, were growing in other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my that was my stage one, and then that come that ends at a in a time of right about 1600, when enslavement becomes really a large scale issue for people on the continent and abroad, and so then the the time from 1600 to 1800 I present as a struggle for survival and then we go on after that but in any case uh, I I had therefore to um, uh, you know schematize and and boil down my presentations of the language and culture groups and the geography of different parts of the continent Um, and uh, so though the way that I tried to deal with the, the problem of, of the huge area and the diversity was just to keep returning to the continent all the way through the narrative and returning to different parts of the continent and to make it so that if anybody, for instance, wanted to do a narrative of East Africa by picking out little segments of the book, uh, you could use the index and and, and do that. But, um, it's a subordinate theme. Um, But um, it was interesting to try to keep alive a little bit of the story of each corner of the African and diaspora world over
1: 600 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's important to emphasize how diverse this place is. It's very large and very diverse, both in what we might call socioeconomic terms. There are people that, you know, with all sorts of different ecologies, there's, I don't know how many languages, zillions of languages, um, people, really a remarkably uh, diverse place. Uh, let me ask another, a little bit more challenging question. I, I don't know, in my mind, there seems to be this distinction. When I think of Africans, I think of sub-Saharan people. I, yeah. I, I don't know why I do that, because I guess the Egyptians are every bit as African as anybody else by the continental standard. But how did you deal with that sort of, I guess, imposed distinction?
0: Well, I've I've lived and worked at this stuff long enough to watch it, the cycle go back and forth. You know, when I was trained in Wisconsin in the '60s, we organized uh, in in fully continental terms, and that was the time when the organization of African Unity was being formed. So, both in contemporary and past terms, that was a way of looking at. And then I watched as. Um, the division began to be made more in in racial terms or what we've understood nowadays to be racial terms. And so North Africa got left out uh, um, for a long time. And now we're getting at a time when both on the continent and in appreciation of the continent from outside, people are looking at it as a whole unit. Um, But uh, I I chose um, to focus on Africa, quotes, as the sub-Saharan homeland, mm-hmm. and then I um, spent a lot of time on a map that's up in the front of the book that distinguishes the homeland from the various groupings of the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And North Africa, also Arabian Peninsula, and also Madagascar are the three areas which I call the near diaspora. Mm-hmm. Those are the places right uh, cheek by towel with sub-Saharan Africa where the largest numbers of migrants went back and forth in both ways um, and uh, where um, the the um, you know the, the continuing survival of sub-Saharan African culture and, and uh, political practice is most evident and so forth and which are actually understudied mm-hmm. um, so um and then the other parts, the, you know, the, the rest of well Eurasia, really, and the Americas, I call the far diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the experience of the book made me feel uh, that the need. To, to spend a lot more time learning about North Africa and Arabia as parts of the African experience and uh, I don't you know I'm pointed in that direction that now we'll see how far I get. Mm-hmm.
1: Russians have a great expression for just the concept you're talking about they talk about Russia and then the near abroad. <laughs> yeah. I really like that the near abroad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. let's talk a little bit about the uh, the near I guess you call it the near diaspora or is that yeah. A, yeah the near diaspora let's talk a little bit about that and uh, and the movement of Africans subcontinental Africans to the to the north I guess Um, why did they go under what impetus did they move well
0: um, uh, trade initially you know had people moving in both directions so uh, there is a substantial gold trade where the gold was in in West Africa and the Niger Valley and, and heading up to the Mediterranean and Uh, salt going from the Sahara in both directions and horses going uh, from north to south. Um, And um, a lot of trade along the uh, Red Sea uh, so that Ethiopia uh, was linked to Egypt and uh, Syria and so forth and for that matter to India. So those commercial ties are always there, but it became um, uh, the, the proportion of it that was focused on on moving people in slavery from south to north grew mm-hmm. um, slowly and steadily the documents are not you know not quite so the The peak in that slave trade was in the nineteenth century mm-hmm. uh, but it it went way back uh to uh, certainly to the sixth century and really. You know, if you think back to Greek and Roman times, a certain number of the slaves there were from the Nile Valley as, as well as mm-hmm. other parts of the world around mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a long, long experience of uh, people being uh, brought in, uh, either sold individually as slaves or, in case, you know, sometimes captured in wars uh, like the wars up and down the Nile Valley.
1: Mm-hmm. One question I had which had reference to the Russian experience, I happen to know that. Uh, you you um, you often find Russians in uh, I wanted to say Arab, but really Muslim captivity because Muslims cannot enslave other Muslims, but they don't mind slavery so much. So they would slave raid into uh, Russian territories in the 13th and 14th century, uh, right? And. and and since the caliphate controlled the northern Mediterranean, I think, at this yeah. period, yeah, uh, were they sending detachments of people to gather up slaves? And also one of the other things I realized is that uh, in the Russian case, they were able to gather a lot of slaves because the Russians refused to convert. But the um, but there were lots of African peoples that adopted slaves. Uh, Islam at this time. This is when Africa is Islamized or at least a large portion of it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, there's a, there's a, a the process of Islam making its way into sub-Saharan Africa starts from the um, you know, 7th or 8th, 8th or 9th yeah, century, yeah. I guess, and and slowly spreads on, you know, it really uh, accelerates in the in the nineteenth century but um but it's uh you know it's steadily advancing throughout this this uh the time from shortly after when Islam was founded. Um, and um you know some of the some of the African s- slaves were especially once the Ottoman Empire got going, right? So fourteenth and fifteenth yeah. century uh, uh they're moving people all around the Mediterranean and, and and the Black Sea. So this is one of the ways in which a certain number of people of African origin got to, to Abkhazia on the on the eastern yeah. Black Sea coast. Yeah. <laughs> um and uh you know, by the same reasoning, uh Russian and other Slavic uh captives must have been moved all around
1: the Mediterranean. Well they were we know we know we have lists of them and you can see that the names are uh they're basically East Slavic names and these were clearly Russians that have yeah. been sold into slavery or been captured and sold into slavery by uh, by other russians we don't really know how it transpired there's almost no documentation this situation is quite parallel in that way because we don't we only see it from the ottoman side or from in this case yeah. the safafid side you know the iranian side we don't the russians are mute basically about all this but we see their names and lists so we know that that they were serving in the ottoman court and in the safafid court so i guess it's parallel in that way we're um were African traders well known? I mean, we think of the Renaissance, for example, as a, a period of great and growing trade in the Mediterranean and other places. Were African traders known among, you know, Genoese traders and this kind of thing?
0: Um, yeah, although they weren't, you know, African-led
1: uh, expeditions
0: and so forth. So they, they I say, who was running the? Who is running the? Interview. So there's well, let me let me think about this. Um, the, the 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 question is is a great one. We don't have documents that I can think of of uh, African merchants who have headed off from someplace like um, Mali or Nubia and gone to um, you know as far as Istanbul or Venice and so forth. We have we have plenty of stories of um um priests or people from the clergy from Ethiopia who go over this large area. Um mm-hmm. and uh and the African merchants that I know of documented remained on the African continent. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. the um yeah but uh, there's this tremendous treasure trove of, of of arabic language documents that's being uncovered uh in and around Timbuktu uh-huh. you know these come from as early as as the 15th century and right on up to the 19th century and families held on to these documents for a long time and then in the last decade or so they've been passing them on to uh, libraries and they're building these you know uh, libraries just the way they ought to be everything cataloged and and uh, um, made uh, electronic copies of everything and, and put in proper
1: air conditioning and so forth. And I, hope, so there's, there's some, there's I just, hope there's some enterprising history undergraduates listening to this because you should contact yeah, Professor Manning about, <laughs> uh, about a really bang um, up dissertation. Learn some Arabic and go to Timbuktu. It sounds like a terrific...
0: Yeah language. and so and so and the, the cosmopolitan nature of the region, the things that they knew about from all over the world, are, are come clearly out of those things that I've seen reported from those
1: documents. I see. Well, let's uh, let's move let's move forward a little bit in time to the, the actual slave trade yeah. itself. Why? Why did um you know I've always wondered about this. Why, why did Africa become lo- Africa become the locus of the slave trade when the slave trade got going, so to say? Yeah. Um,
0: it is a um, I mean, it's a, it's in the course of the 17th century that African slavery becomes the dominant aspect of slavery. African slavery, where people are held and put to work in the Americas, that that becomes the dominant part of slavery worldwide. Before that, you know, slavery was a whole bunch of different people, especially in the Mediterranean and then all the way to um Iran and India, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, the development of the Atlantic plantation economy, an economy which began in the in the 16th century, and uh, as soon as the Europeans uh, got to the Americas, but it, it really took hold, especially if you if you think of the Dutch and their expansion in the in the 1600s and attempt to seize the. Uh, the whole of the Portuguese empire and as much as they could get of the Spanish um, and uh, the effectiveness of their, their big boats and uh, uh, just good skills at, at making commercial deals and setting up um, sugar plantations that expanded and developed a market for selling the sugar in Europe. Um, this is when um, the flows of, of um captured people across the Atlantic really become systematized. And and then it's also the time when the Dutch and the English and the French are becoming much more important in commerce every place in Europe and the world. And, and uh, in a way, the the beginnings of the slave trade were, were cutting edge of that. You know, they had to learn all kinds of things about managing, carrying such large numbers of people and trying to keep them alive uh, across long voyages. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's an important it's the expansion of the Atlantic economy in the European economy, uh, but it. I think you know as we as we look at this in more world historical terms, we'll see broader connections because, for instance, most of the goods exchanged for uh, African captives were textiles from India. So Indian textiles were. Shipped all the way to Amsterdam or Lisbon, wow. and then sent back to uh, the African coast. The reason for going indirectly was partly just the nature of the um, the, the winds. Uh, just uh, was, was not easy to sail directly from India to West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so uh, that. That time period um, is the is the big expansion of slavery for Africa the big expansion of slave populations for the Americas. Mm-hmm. You have to mention the fact that the population of the Americas had collapsed to just tiny populations, as a result of disease, especially in the you know by 1650 was a sort of a low point in American populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So well, bringing in workers from outside.
1: Yeah, exactly. I understand the what you might call demand side of the equation, which is to say these Europeans found themselves in possession of a a lot of land, which they incidentally had stolen, of course, and decimated the native populations. And this land was reasonably fertile and had material endowments, and they didn't have people to work it. But I don't really understand the supply side very well. And you talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's not as if you could sort of tool into uh, a Portuguese port and say, I'd like some slaves. But in Africa, apparently, you could do that. Uh, And and I don't really understand how – and again, this may seem like a completely naive question that every Africanist knows. How did they get the slaves? How did they get the slaves? Yeah. Um,
0: So um, one big portion of the debate is the the argument – that uh, that John Thornton made uh, especially popular that Africa was full of slaves that there were a lot of people already there in slave positions and that they could just they were being sold back and forth anyhow they could be sold uh, to the Europeans and uh, so no big change I think the reason I think that's wrong is because. Uh, difference between the number of people enslaved in the 16th century and in the 19th century is so great that you have to acknowledge that slavery had expanded greatly in mm-hmm. that interim. <clears throat> Nonetheless, it is the case that, as you said, you, you, uh, merchants were able to uh, sail into towns and after a bunch of haggling and so forth come up with a load of people in slavery. Um, so um, one, um uh, there were hierarchies where some people were dependents uh, of others, not necessarily enslaved. Um, but enslavement involved you know somebody shifting the rules. So as a legal issue, you know African societies had laws recognizing and protecting the rights of people that were free mm-hmm. uh, and on the other hand, when you captured somebody, uh, you could make the legal system grow, change, and, and all of a sudden somebody that has lost all the rights that mm-hmm. they had. Now, there were lots of efforts of, of families to uh, uh, ransom people who had been captured if they could find news of so somebody and their family had been captured and go try to buy them back. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the um, social fragmentation and, and the the um, divisions between political units uh, made it so that there were wars going on and there were captives. And these tiny numbers of captives that were carried off at first began to build a system. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to, um, uh, I mean, there's so many dimensions of this, but just to continue with this, this, this part of it, the, 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 basic ability of uh, the European visitors to pay a price that was high enough mm-hmm. that you could always find somebody some thug it seems to me yeah. who would capture people and sell them and get rich from that and then from that position of wealth be able to uh, propagate the system uh, mm-hmm. meant that at various times when people would rebel and and uh, overthrow the uh, the slave traders uh, within Africa. What do you do with the people you've captured? Well, the temptation is to sell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, it's it's difficult to get out of the system as it grows.
1: I mean, in a way, my question really is a naive one, and I'm sure one of my listeners will point this out, because this process is still going on today. There are, I guess, millions of slaves in the world today. I, I, was, I read that there are more slaves alive today than were ever past them middle passage. So people are still selling one another. They're still finding the slaves. They're still supply and demand. Let me let me ask you a question about the middle passage. Can I, can I yeah. just interrupt ahead, on
0: please, get the yeah. next question on that, on that point? Because this is one of the things that really has been learned in the course of the last 30, 40 years of study about slavery. When I was amongst those working on this in its earlier stages, there was the idea that once the state comes out against slavery, you can repress it and it'll be gone. Okay, and so there was a lot of complaint because the European states in Africa did not liberate all the slaves right away, and that was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But what we know now is that enslavement is uh, something that gets reinvented time and time again. And, uh, and so we're, we're watching its expansion yeah. nowadays. And so that gives a new understanding of the sort of proclivity to enslave, which is always there. And then sometimes it gets totally out of hand. Yeah, like
1: now. yeah I mean, I think that's exactly right. That is, there is something in us that wants to do it. I, I don't know how else to say it, because it does recur and recur and recur, even among really right-thinking people, like the people that yeah. founded this country, who <laughs> we think of as you know, very bright folks who were on the right side of most everything. And they were even a little bit confused about the question as to whether it would be a good or bad thing to enslave Africans. And and that has to be sort of remarkable to anybody who thinks about the founding of our country. Uh, But they were confused. Um, We're not, at least most of us aren't. But there are people in the world who are. Again, I wanted to go back to uh, the the middle passage for just a second before we move on to uh, a little bit more um, positive times for the Africans and their diaspora uh and that that is a I wanted to ask a question about it i think a remarkable fact in the book, and I didn't know this at all. I knew that the middle passage was horrific that you know something a quarter of people who went on it under fourteen fifteen percent changes die um but almost uh, the same percentage of crew members died on this passage did i did I understand that correctly yeah yeah so
0: uh um, <laughs> and it's it's disease in each case now the crew members are on board ship for a longer time period than the than the captives. Uh, but uh malaria especially uh but you know dysentery and uh, uh scurvy and and so forth so uh so you know even in the better days of the late eighteenth uh, century uh, um ten percent fifteen percent of 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 the captives and a slightly larger percent of crew are are failing to survive. Crew members include people uh, who are African-born or mm-hmm, African-descended yeah. as well. As, uh, uh, um, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was uh, it was a deadly business.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly. That's, I was I was astounded. I read that uh, passage out loud to my wife because I could I could hardly believe it. That is rough duty. Yeah. You know, you sign yeah. into a ship, and there's a pretty much a one in five chance you're not going to make it. <laughs> right, least, yeah. that is tough. So, which isn't, of course, to say that it wasn't far worse for the people who were below decks because it was. Um, so, let, let's let's move on um, past uh, uh, the growth of the slave system uh, into the era of its uh, official um, dismantling. That is the 19th century. Maybe you could tell that story.
0: Well, the 19th century seems to me to have been a immensely a, a complicated time in that in one side of it is the growing and worldwide campaign for emancipation of slaves, which succeeds in the Americas before it, uh, or I guess it succeeds first in Western Europe and then in the Americas and then gradually in other parts of the world. But at that same time, slavery was still expanding So Cuba and Brazil in the Americas and then all over the African continent and then to a lesser degree in Asia and the Indian Ocean, slavery was expanding during the 19th century. But then the third point is as emancipation takes place, the development of free communities of color. uh, So there were always a lot of free black people in the Americas especially in the Spanish and Portuguese territories, but really everywhere. Uh, but their ability to uh, build uh, communities and try to buy more land and start education programs and start political programs, Pan-Africanism as a the broadest part of that is, uh, is the third big part of the 19th century. And then all of this taking place at the time when Europe, Europe's imperial strength is growing and where industrialization is uh, transforming the economies of uh, of place after place. Even in Africa, not that the industrial production was there, but that industrially produced goods become important in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, Now, that that complicates it enough to make it so that it's not a, a neat story. Uh, but I, the part that I want to emphasize is that the the slavery part of it continues for quite some time.
1: Yeah, we were talking to a Brazilian uh, historian recently, and I, I had no idea that uh, slavery lasted as long as it did, or was uh, as important as it was in Brazil. Brazil yeah. was the largest slaveholding country in the Western Hemisphere in the 19th century. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's right. So another thing I'm really interested in, and I've talked several times. With people uh, on the show about this, is the the initiative that the Africans uh, or then African Brazilians or African Americans, I don't know what to call them, uh, the the slaves or ex-slaves, their initiatives in setting up communities of their own. And the reason I mention this is I grew up near one of them or the remnants of one of them, a place called Nicodemus in Kansas, uh, Uh which was a black settler community. Um, It was largely gone by the time that uh, I, I remember seeing it. But I, I think that um, it's important to recognize that uh, the Africans themselves showed lots of initiative in in attempting to uh, create a really an African culture, an African American culture, in the confines of this greater sort of racial hegemony. Maybe you could talk about those kinds of efforts for a second.
0: Well, of course, there's Mar- maroon communities, escaped uh, communities that have escaped slaves. So that's that's one part of it. But uh, there's uh, uh, the uh, the the church communities there is the creation of uh, this this set of uh, universities in in the U S uh, at uh, right at uh, the time of the Civil War and after it so Wilberforce and what's now Lincoln University and uh, uh, the uh, Morehouse and uh, uh, Hampton and and Howard, Um, so um, no place else in the world except certain European uh, schools could uh, black people gain higher education. So that's one such, one such uh, thing, Um, and it involves those involved all uh, white black. Uh, cooperation uh, with its ups and downs, Uh, but that's that's an important part of the story uh, throughout, but especially at that time. Um, But uh, the uh, equivalent uh, educational institutions in uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia and and high schools in Nigeria uh, are uh, developing also in the the 1860s, 70s, 80s. Uh, So there's interesting... A parallel all around the world as um uh, this is a time when um in Latin America, um, where there's a certain amount of civil war in the newly independent countries there um, um black men commonly volunteered for military service uh because they you know believed in the particular side with which they were affiliated, but also because military distinction was a way to gain. Uh, social advance and and recognition and confirm that they would be free rather than slave. Mm -hmm. And so, out of this, a number of the main military leaders and and, uh, several um, uh, political leaders and presidents and vice presidents of countries were of African descent. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's it's about at this time, near the end of the 19th century, I think, Uh, we'll move forward in time to the period. We discuss the the, the, not not emancipation, but citizenship that we find. And one of the most fascinating things to me, uh, we've we've interviewed a couple of people on the show, one who wrote a terrific biography of Marcus Garvey is the is the question in the black diaspora community about what to do and to put it in the simplest terms to stay or go. And I find this just really um, it's interesting. It's kind of the same thing was happening in the Jewish community at the time. Where, where, where should we live exactly? Maybe you could talk a little about that. Where,
0: where, sh- where should we live and, and, and how should we live? Because racial discrimination is is reaching uh, an unprecedented peak. So people are free now and have that, the possibility of moving uh but on the other hand uh where different types of discrimination and, and just expressions of of hatred uh, are are reaching a um a peak um so um um movements from Brazil uh, to uh West Africa um were actually it began in the 1830s and 40s so that's a little that's a little earlier for this the, the hmm. If I maybe if I can change the question a little bit, what has struck me is not so much the migration of peoples, uh, but the cultural responses to uh, it, yeah. the um uh, to the high pressures of the time. So, because black people are being dr- driven out of political office every place in the world in the 1890s. Okay. So in Africa, you know, the regimes are losing power in the Americas people are uh, are no longer elected to any office. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's at this time that an astonishing cultural creativity shows up. Um, And so, uh, uh, so uh, lift every voice that Negro national anthem was written in the first decade of the 20th century Uh, and all sorts of, you know, so in America we tell the stories of jazz and blues arising at this time, but in other parts of the world, uh, all the Cuban and Trinidadian and and Ghanaian and Moroccan forms of music that became key later on developed at this time so what what struck me as coming out of the communities was that the communities were uh just uh celebrating themselves, strengthening themselves, and producing um uh, cultural forms that were interesting not only to the community, but increased their prestige with people around them. Mm-hmm. And so that the the cultural creativity of that really dark time did a lot mm-hmm. to strengthen the social relations and ultimately the political position of, of Black people in country after country.
1: Mm-hmm. I, th- I think one thing we need to be careful to do, especially during this period, is not to homogenize the black groups in the diaspora and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of a story that uh this fellow who wrote the biography of marcus garvey who was from the islands uh, tells and uh, apparently garvey decided after moving to new york from the islands to take a trip to the american south Uh-huh. and garvey was amazed and shocked by what he saw namely he was shocked by the deference that black people showed white people because where he was from in the islands, that didn't happen because not at all, because there were 99 black people for every one white person. So it just didn't happen. And he, he really was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And and so, you know, you see this differentiation among these communities themselves. Garvey is sort of one of my heroes in a weird sort of way, because I, he's largely forgotten as, as an American figure, or thought to be a buffoon, but uh, having read this biography, I am just very impressed by the guy. Uh, And, and, uh, and and really, these movements toward either was a return to Africa or some sort of black liberation or creating your own community yeah. it was a period of tremendous vibrancy within the, the diaspora.
0: diaspora um, yes uh and um so diaspora is, um, um garvey's interesting as a, as an artisan he's trained as a as a printer and a uh, newspaper yeah that's and right
1: and his father was right his father was printer.
0: yeah um, and uh and his movement really got kicked off, really grew in response to the um, the race riots of American cities in yeah. 1917, 18 and 19. And so there were angry, angry black people, because the race riots in those days were white people coming in and tearing up the black community, trying to drive people out of the, the cities that, that they'd come to inhabit. And so angry people joined up in this, in this nationalist organization. Yeah. Uh, and newspapers went all over the world, Yeah. Uh, and the, um, so there was a, a, a you know, without access to formal political institutions, with the newspapers being illegal in most places, an astonishing network of um,
1: um, pan African thoughts right around the world. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I hate to I hate to interrupt with almost a, a sort of what, what will what may seem to some people to be a, a kind of controversial point, but this interchange and exchange of ideas in the Jewish diaspora community has been studied very extensively. I mean, yeah. on this very show, we have interviewed five or six people who have devoted their entire careers to it. And I think in the African case, it just hasn't been studied extensively. I'm sure my listeners will write me and tell me that I'm full of it. But, I, you know, I just having read the, the, your book and the Garvey biography, there's a very rich uh, vein to be mined in terms of really serious uh diasporic discussion among black people about what they should do uh and uh, there's probably tons of intellectual biographies and histories to be written about this um so get to it people no (laughs) Um, so anyway why don't we go ahead uh my
0: response at the end of it is that you know to realize that in in all the history the big histories of the modern world um, black people are left out. Yeah, that's basically true. They're just, they're given a footnote. There's a footnote for slavery, and a footnote for emancipation, and a footnote for decolonization and civil yeah. rights. But this, so that tells you that the story of modernity is done uh, from the elite perspective. Yeah, that's true. Because black people didn't get to be elite. Uh, that was, I mean, uh, for a long period of time, they were they were simply systematically removed from the elite positions. Yeah. and so that the whole history that we do uh, under emphasizes uh, the way in which uh, the part that I tried to tell most is in which cultural development bubbles up from communities and has its influence. But also, yeah. if you think about economic work or even uh, techniques of political activism those are stories that um uh because they're undervalued uh have have not been been told and that's the dimension I mean so it's not simple racial discrimination that eliminates Africa from these histories of the of the world but it's a, what type of history we want to do so i've become a big fan now of, of world history from the from the bottom up the yeah. explore what we can do with
1: it. Well, I mean, I certainly think it's the case, I, you know, again, not to become too political or anything like that. I mean, I, I think that we should applaud good work that's done wherever uh, it is done. And, and in the case of the Jewish diaspora, people have done absolutely fantastic work, and God love them for it. But it's largely because they have had the, uh, you know, the institutional support which is necessary in order to do that. I mean, there's usually a chair in Jewish history at every major university. I don't know how many chairs there are in African or diasporic uh, uh, um uh, studies or or in history. I mean, there's the occasional you know there's the occasional uh, 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 African American study Center or something like this. But you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, in order to do our work, historians need support. And the fact of the matter is that this work hasn't been supported very. Very, very well. So, those of you who are listening who have very large checkbooks, <laughs> send Pat a check, and he'll put your money to good worth or good use. So, I wanted to, I wanted to um, talk in, in this uh, final segment about the, the 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 period, which I think that most of the listeners will know most about, and that is the, the the period you call equality from 1960 to the to the or almost to the present. And this is the moment at which the the civil rights movement gets going and. Uh, something approaching equality is achieved. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, the the
0: premise of the section is that by 1960, people in Africa and the Diaspora had achieved citizenship, uh, formal political rights, mm-hmm. and the search now was for more general equality. But what do you mean equality? Does equality mean giving up your own identity to become the same as everybody else? Uh, Is it economic equality, is it cultural equality? So big, uh, big disputes on this issue. Um, But amongst the things I noted is that in in that time period from 1960 to 2000, there were astonishing advances in the levels of education in black populations in Africa and overseas. That's one big thing. Another thing is really remarkable improvements in health conditions. So the African expectations of life were at about thirty five years in nineteen sixty and were pretty close to um fifty years uh in in two thousand. So that's um you know that's still low on a global comparison, but as a as a change within the continent it's, it's huge. And then on the other hand, the AIDS epidemic, uh which is really concentrated on the African continent. Has actually reduced uh, expectations of life for overall populations mm-hmm. you know, most of the way back to where they were in 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know the positive the positive side of the move to equality is the the just dramatic changes that you see in sport. Uh, so, if you think of you know, soccer as an example, you know where where soccer players are spread all around the world that all the European teams have lead figures who were born in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, just the change in, in basketball and football in the U.S. are, are such examples. Um, the place of black people in popular culture is, uh, you know, sort of stunning in terms of of uh, the, for the U.S., where ten mm-hmm. percent of the population played such a role in popular culture. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you go back to the 30s and 40s, you realize, oh yeah, well, whatever whatever people were paid in those days, there was a there was a substantial, um, you know, leadership role of uh, black artists in those times. So that's the those are things where you see big changes, moves towards equality, and on the other hand, economic inequality despite the improved health and educational conditions, it's gotten worse. Uh it's gotten worse uh, uh in kind on of a comparative basis, mm-hmm. at least in in um in in the US and in, in most of the Americas and in, in, in absolute basis in many parts of Africa. Mm-hmm. So what is that for the dilemma?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I see. We should probably, before we close the show, say that the African diaspora has hardly ceased. I mean, I know just even here at the University of Iowa in the middle of the United States, we have lots of African students who come here, um, and most of them actually return to Africa, but they come and stay with us for a while, and we're very happy to have them. So anybody thinking about graduate uh, education in Africa should listen to me and apply. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, there's still Africans going all over the world now
0: oh yeah no the 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 number of migrants uh I mean, I mean poor people struggling desperately to get into Europe to find work at, on on one hand and uh um, you know uh highly educated professionals
1: uh, moving wherever they want uh, yeah yeah to together and uh, yeah well, it's a remarkable story, and thank you for uh telling it we've taken up a ton of your time and I really appreciate it it's such an honor to talk to you let me uh Close the interview with our traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, Pat, what are you working on now? What is your next what project? I working on uh, now?
0: Too many things. Building the World <laughs> History Center. Um, yeah. a, a book on African population, where I'm using the simulation techniques that I used before, to, and the results will show a much larger African population for the period from 1650 to 1900 than uh-huh. has been expected. Uh, I'm writing a textbook in world history. I worked up my courage to do that. Uh, I have a new book coming out on um, uh, the era nineteen eighty nine to ninety one uh, a, um, a world historical view of that time period mm-hmm. undergraduate students mm-hmm. And I have a long term research project with a co-worker Chris Derrett of UCLA where we're going to try we're going to do a history of early humanity. Uh, a historian's take on uh, the times from you know early early Homo sapiens in on the African continent up until about five or six thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and look at material from all the different disciplines
1: to try to tell mm-hmm. the story of migration and mm-hmm. community growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, all those sound fantastic, and um, I hope you get some sleep. That's <laughs> a lot of irons in the fire So anyway, I should tell our listeners We've been talking to Pat Manning About his terrific new book The African Diaspora, A History Through Culture um, Pat, thank you very much for being on the show I really appreciate it My pleasure Okay, take care, bye-bye. bye-bye You've been listening to an interview with Pat Manning About his new book The African Diaspora, A History Through Culture I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History I hope you have a great week